Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is a special live edition of Talking Politics. We're coming to you live from the Cambridge Festival of Ideas. We are in the St. John's College Divinity School. We are not going to be talking about divinity tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking about maybe the opposite. <laughs> Donald Trump did call Hillary Clinton the devil in a recent presidential debate. I'm sure we will get to that. But what we're going to start off by addressing is the question about how this amazing, extraordinary presidential campaign fits into the broad sweep of American history. And I'm delighted to say that we're joined tonight by two of the most distinguished historians of the United States, both members of the Cambridge History Faculty, Professor David Reynolds, who among many other things was the presenter and author of the epic BBC radio series, Empire of Liberty, which told the history of the American Republic, and Professor Gary Gerstle, the Mellon Professor of American History, whose most recent book is Liberty and Coercion, a timely and fascinating study of changing, evolving American attitudes to the power of government. Two books with liberty in the title, but each of which suggests that it's more complicated than that, and liberty in the American's case may go along sometimes with its opposite. We've also got two of our regular Talking Politics panelists with us, Erin Rapport and Helen Thompson. Before we start, there's one thing I have to say for our podcast listeners, which is a kind of, I guess, a health warning which is we're recording this at 7.30 p.m. on Wednesday, the 19th of October. And later tonight, in the early hours of the morning, UK time, is the third and final presidential debate. And, of course, we don't know what's going to happen. And in this campaign, it's always something of a hostage to fortune to assume that you do know what's going to happen. If It's hard to imagine what the thing would be, but you don't know. If Donald Trump says something which is, even by the standards of what he's been saying so extraordinary that it changes the dynamic of the race. I'm sorry we didn't see it coming. If Hillary Clinton coughs and can't stop coughing, I'm sorry we didn't see it coming. We cannot predict what will happen in the next few hours. People listening to this know we don't. We will talk in a minute about some of the things that may happen a bit further down the line. But we're going to start by talking about the present and how it relates to the past, because this is really about this extraordinary moment in history and how it compares. You will know, if you've read almost anywhere about this campaign, that it is often described as unprecedented. It is often called the nastiest, the dirtiest, the ugliest, the most tawdry campaign in American presidential history. We may come on to that. I'm not sure that it is, because the past isn't as rosy as we think. Donald Trump himself has been frequently described as a unique candidate in the history of American presidential politics, both in his persona and also in his relationship to the political system to which he is now effectively laying waste. He has said some things, particularly recently, that may not have precedent. He has already started to challenge the legitimacy of the result. He is laying the groundwork for the conspiracy theories that may say that the fix was in. And there is a minimal definition of democracy which says it simply is that the losers accept that they've lost. So this may be something new. And of course, both parties are under huge strain and this election is disrupting them. And that's not to mention the thing that is unique about this election, which is that the other candidate is the first woman to be nominated by either of the two main parties. So there are lots of ways in which this election is often described as something unique, but we're here to talk about whether it really is or not before we get on to talking about what we think may be going to happen. So Gary, if I can start with you, what's your feeling about this moment 
in the broad sweep of American political history? Does it feel to you like something that's never been there before? Are we in uncharted territory, or does it remind you of anything? I think there is a context. I actually think there are two contexts. One's a national, and one is a world context. Let me start with the national context. A lot of what's going on now is actually not unprecedented. Uh, if you look at American politics and elections more generally, there's a long history of insurgents from outside the two political parties or on the margins of the two political parties or below the political parties coming into politics as insurgents. I began to think of the people who have preceded Trump, and it's quite a long list. Uh, Ross Perot in 92, uh, Barry Goldwater in 1964, Robert LaFollette, who was going to bring the British Labor Party to America in 1924. That didn't work out so well. Theodore Roosevelt in 1912, William Jennings Bryan in 1896. Insurgents shaking up the two-party system are a regular part of American politics, and I would say a necessary part because political parties are big coalitions, ideologically diverse. They're like big battleships. They're hard to turn around, and usually they don't want to unless there's some extreme pressure coming at them from without. And I think both in the Republican and Democratic parties we're seeing the pressure from without now. And if anything good comes of this election, and I'm hoping something good does come of it, it will be for this insurgent spirit. Now, while many of these, these third-party candidates are marginal figures who, who seriously challenge the political system, have often been radical in their politics, they have been quite respectful and decorous of the political system itself. They have been willing to play. Once they throw their hats into the ring, they have been willing to play by the rules. They have been willing to uh, accept the results. They have been willing to play the game. And often, once they enter formal politics, they are domesticated by party establishments in one form or another. I feel a butt coming. Mm -hmm. The American political history does have a raucous history, especially in the 19th century. So raucousness is not new. But a lot of raucousness that Trump embodies has gone out of American politics in the 20th century. Trump is the figure bringing it back. And I think what makes him so uh, both alluring and threatening a figure is that he's, in his own way, a radical uh, in his ideas. And he's a, a radical in the sense that he's willing to go to great lengths, including to subvert the democratic process to achieve his aims. We haven't seen that in the United States in a very, very long time. David, what's your, your feeling on it in the, the broad sweep of the history of the republic? Well, I was thinking of an election that Gary mentioned briefly, uh, 1964, which is Lyndon Johnson, uh, the incumbent president, against Barry Goldwater. And there are differences, but there are also interesting parallels. Goldwater came from the right. Uh, he was an established politician, a senator from Arizona, but he got himself increasingly painted as an extremist, critical of civil rights, or at least federal legislation on civil rights, uh, advocating, I think, the possibility of using tactical nuclear weapons in Vietnam. And increasingly, people started to present him as a crazy candidate. The most potent of the Democrat adverts, I think, was of a, a girl picking petals to the, the sound of a countdown to nuclear war. Goldwater's slogan was, in your heart, you know he's right. And the Democrats said, in your guts, you know he's nuts. Um, Johnson was the establishment candidate. He had, as it were, skeletons in the cupboard, another analogy, if you like, with the Democrat front runner. And he ended up with a massive landslide. 
What was interesting was that, of course, there was a sting in the tail of this because Goldwater only won a few states. They were in the deep south, states like Louisiana, Alabama, uh, Georgia, and never voted Republican before. Republicans were associated with Reconstruction after the Civil War, the imposition of northern military rule and, and the federal government. And that began the, one of the major shifts in American politics in recent times, which was the whole sort of southern strategy Nixon developed, Reagan developed, of bringing the South away from the Democratic Party and into the Republican Party. So I think there may be some suggestive sort of analogies there, which um, we may see played out. Helen, do you think that this election could be a similar shift in that we've talked about this a bit before on our podcast. In some ways, the electoral map looks like it has looked for the past four or five. So you wouldn't know that this was a unique election, that Donald Trump was an unprecedented candidate. But there are signs that some states that were solidly in one block are starting to move. Is that, is that right? I think there's certainly a good possibility and that the map will look somewhat different, even though it will produce a Democrat victory than what we've looked at in the past. I mean, the most obvious state where that's the case is it's quite possible that Donald Trump will win Ohio. I wouldn't say it was definite that he'll win Ohio, but he's got a better chance uh, of winning it than the Republican candidates for the last two elections have had. I think, though, it's difficult to see how he fundamentally changes the Republican Party beyond destroying it in the sense in which Goldwater changed it from being a certain kind of party to another kind of party in the way in which David described, because he is determined to blow the Republican Party up. And actually, Goldwater was determined to capture the Republican Party and turn it into a small-c conservative party. In terms of what Trump's done in the last few weeks, since essentially the Republican Party has disowned him, he's declared war on both parties and the entire establishment. Indeed, this week he described the whole situation in Washington as to what he wanted to achieve is to drain the swamp. And I think the Republican Party was very much part of the swamp as far as he saw it. So I think Trumpism, if we want to call it that, is going somewhere. I don't think it's going into a new electoral coalition for the Republican Party. Aaron, what's, what's your sense of it? Because as Gary mentioned, one of the ways it may be unprecedented is people used to play by the rules of the game, even though they were trying to subvert some of the ideas and some of the winning strategies and coalitions. But particularly, I think probably in the last week, Trump has stepped outside of that. I think that's right. Uh, first, I'd like to add a, a footnote to something that David was talking about regarding the uh, mental health of, of Goldwater. You actually had a lot of psychiatrists commenting in the press at the time that uh, perhaps he hadn't been hugged by daddy enough, uh, and that's why he was a psychopath. And uh, this was why the American Psychiatric Association formally established rules saying that licensed psych psychiatrists should not comment on presidential candidates, should not kind of uh, put them on the couch from afar. I think the APA might be thinking about reversing that policy <laughs> in this election. Uh, the w precedent that I was thinking about wasn't exactly 1964. It was uh, 140 years earlier. Somebody can check my math. Uh, the election of 1824 in which John Quincy Adams ended up becoming president. But the winner of the plurality of the popular vote that year was Andrew Jackson. And Jackson, of course, was a military man. Uh, Donald Trump was not. But he was running on uh, some of the very same issues that Trump kind of ran. So in 1819, you had a major financial panic in the United States caused of, and this will sound familiar probably to a lot of you, bad bets on land speculation by the big banks funded by the uh, second U.S. Central Bank. And you also had, in 1820, the Missouri Compromise, uh, which highlighted the sectional tensions and conflicts between the slave 
slaveholding states in the South and the non-slaveholding states north of the uh, 36 parallel line. And you, you have that here, right? And, and, and so Jackson was running against the banks, against the moneyed interests, uh, against kind of the, the northern liberals who were opposed to slavery. And Trump has also very much been running against the establishment and the moneyed interests, even though he is very much a moneyed interest and certainly also hasn't been known for his fondness of, of multiculturalism or, or uh, ethnic tolerance. And ultimately, right, Jackson lost the election and uh, it was said, well, this was rigged. It was a rigged game between Henry Clay, who was the Speaker of the House, and uh, John Quincy Adams. That, that would be my precedent. Gary, do you want to come in? There's a case to be made that the 1824 election was rigged. Of course, the rules weren't really set yet. America was a democracy in name, but no one really knew what they meant. I would say it's only after Jackson does win the election in 1828 that the rules of American politics begin to solidify in ways they had not before. Uh, there's another element of Jackson which calls to mind Trump. His supporters were rowdy, obscene, tawdry. They were the backwoodsmen. And when after the inauguration, they all piled into the White House, broke all the glass, stole all the champagne, and upset the ladies, as the accounts say. Uh, so this was a real rupture of political decorum and political culture. On the other hand, Jackson was a successful general who was deeply committed to the United States. He held the country together at a time when betting people thought it was going to break apart. When there was a serious constitutional crisis in 1832 when South Carolina decided it wanted to nullify the laws of the federal government. Jackson, the Southerner, said no over my dead body, and he enforced the will of the Constitution and preserved the Republic at a very vulnerable moment, which is to say he had deep regard for the Constitution. He had deep respect for it. I don't sense that in Trump at all. He doesn't know the Constitution. That's one problem. Um, but he also has no respect for it. And I'm convinced that were he to be elected, which is very, very unlikely now, the United States will have a serious constitutional crisis within the first 18 months of the presidency. I'd like to just move this on to a larger set of issues to do with what the election represents, because these are moments in American history, snapshots of larger themes. And one that strikes me that has, again, certain parallels with this country is the question of national identity. In other words, the question of immigration and the nature of America, or as Samuel Huntington said, I think, in a book about 10 years ago, who are we? The loss of that sense of a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant core to the American identity centered on the use of the English language. And you could do a, a long view of American history. We were going back to the 1820s, 1830s, you go back to the, the middle of the 19th century, you have a spasm of nativism, anti-immigrant feeling in the mid-1850s about Catholic, Irish, and Germans who are regarded as the great unwashed who are challenging the, the elite of the time. You have, of course, the famous huge wave of immigration around the turn of the beginning of the 20th century. I think, what, 1.3 million immigrants in one year in 1907, leading to quotas these are immigrants from the Balkans, Eastern Europe, Russia, again, completely different from the Northwest Europe core that is regarded as okay. You have quotas in 1921 and 1924. Those aren't removed until 1965. One of the biggest and perhaps forgotten aspects of John, Lyndon Johnson's reforms as president is the 1965 Immigration Act, which takes away the quotas 
And that's, in a significant degree, the reason why you have, what is it, 17% of the population now that is Hispanic and Latino. That's the sort of thing that Trump is playing against. That's the sort of thing that he's bringing out his support. And so there is this larger issue about the changing nature of America, which I think is an issue that will not go away, regardless of whether Trump is defeated or not. And, of course, depending on the nature of his defeat and the, the way in which he and his supporters take it, it could create its own backlash as well. So I think that's a big theme in terms of larger character of American history that we need to keep in mind. I think that's absolutely right. And I think there's another issue to it as well, is, is, though, is a lot of actually of Trump's rhetoric when you look at it about immigration has been about illegal immigration. Is, is that he is increasingly, again, in the last few weeks, as he's moved away from essentially being the Republican Party candidate to being his own candidate, is, is developing a critique that is implicit, and sometimes more than implicit, about saying these are the people who are acceptable as Americans, in saying America has lost its national sovereignty. He gave a speech a few days ago in Miami where that was the essential message. The American establishment has destroyed American national sovereignty, and we, the people, have to take control of the government again. And I think that what we're going to see is, is that both of those aspects of, of, of Trump's appeal, the way he ties the question of who is an American, in which he has a rather narrow definition of who that is, to a critique of what he sees and many other people agree with him about, that there is something that has gone wrong in the way in which America has been governed in relation to these issues. And the fact that he can focus on illegal immigration, I think, gives some potency to this issue from whoever ends up taking the Trump set of issues forward into the future. And, and Aaron, you, your historical analogy mentioned the fact that it was an insurgency against the moneyed interest in the banks. And of course, there's been a double insurgency in this election year. And we mustn't forget that the Democratic Party, too, faced its challenge. And many Bernie Sanders supporters are now thinking, oh, we were so close because we would have won this election. And then who knows what we'd have been talking about tonight. And indeed, the debate tonight would have been interesting in another way. So let's just talk a little bit about that, also the insurgency on the other side, because some of it's being driven by related issues. It, it lacks some of the social, cultural, and indeed racial dimension. But it's almost certainly being driven by globalization and anxieties about some of those effects. And there, there, there have been moments of parallel between the two insurgencies. I mean, they are not entirely distinct movements, are they? Um, I think there's actually more distance between the two, uh, the Sanders movement and the Trump movement, uh, uh, than you made it out to be. So the best evidence we have available, if you look at survey data of uh, Trump supporters in the primaries, as well as more nationally now, uh, Pew Research uh, has done some survey analysis of this, globalization and economic marginalization doesn't seem to explain Trump's support very well. His supporters tend to have higher than the typical median household income in the United States. They don't necessarily uh, live in areas that have been the most harmed by, by economic globalization. But what they are motivated by, and this will sound prejudicial, but this is the analysis, is racial resentment. So if you uh, respond to a question such as, do you agree or disagree uh, that African-Americans have gotten more uh, than they deserve from the government in terms of welfare, and you strongly agree with that statement, very likely you are supporting Trump. Bernie Sanders supporters, on the other hand, seem to reflect a more what I would call inclusive populism rather than exclusive 
populism. So you have younger people who, uh, I'll be honest with you, sometimes they say, well, I really like socialism. And you'd ask them, well, do you favor more government regulation of industry? And they say, oh, no, that sounds bad. So they, they perhaps didn't really know what they meant by that. But what they did know was people like them in their age group, 18 to 24, uh, were having a hard go of it. Uh, they had high student loan debt, the uh, kind of cream of the crop jobs perhaps had, had been available for their parents in the 1970s and, and 80s, weren't there. Uh, and so there was a, a stronger sense of economic disenfranchisement, I think, especially for, for Sanders supporters. So I wouldn't necessarily agree that they're cut from the same cloth. I think I see them as more similar in some respects, although I think your analysis of their, of their support um, is, is very interesting and, and, and useful. And here I want to bring in a, a, a world perspective because I think that what's happening in America now is not just happening in America. Trump is not here, fortunately, but other things are. Uh, I think 2008 will be seen as an inflection point in world history. Uh, the end of a, uh, or the fracturing of a neoliberal order that arose with Reagan and Thatcher in, in the 1980s, dominated the world for 25 years. And what, what 2008 made clear is that not everyone would benefit from, from globalization that there would be winners and losers. And there are winners and losers within countries, the London area, the north of England, within Europe, and of course, between countries. And I think if you look at Trump's core issues, and he has real issues, one is immigration, the other is free trade. If we think of what the principles of the neoliberal order are, they are free movement of people, capital, and goods. That is now being challenged, not just in the United States, that's partly what Brexit is about. It's being challenged uh, by uh, right-wing populists all over Europe. And I think the established parties are caught in a situation where they can't address the core underlying economic issues of not enough economic growth. And in these circumstances, there is a beginning of a search for scapegoats. Immigrants are always a likely scapegoat. Sanders, to his credit, has not indulged in that at all. Uh, but he is at one with Trump on protectionism, the end of free trade, uh, and reorganizing the economies to benefit the little guy. In that sense, Sanders uh, and Trump see eye to eye. And there's a sense in which the politics is not working as it should, that establishments within parties can't get control of the political process, it's a very confusing, frightening moment. It's absolutely fascinating for historians to study, but as a citizen of the United States and as a resident of the UK who cares very much about it, we all know it's a very frightening moment because we don't know exactly where we are going. And Trump is expressive, I think, of an order beginning to fracture and break apart. Your reference to, to Bernie Sanders makes me think of something else that I'm curious what we all think, and that's about the, the primary system in the United States. It's hard to imagine Trump getting to this position if there hadn't been a, uh, a primary system uh, and one that is based in particular states and, of course, starts with states that are particularly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant that kicks the thing off, New Hampshire, Iowa, Caucus, and so on. And the, the primaries, as people know, started, I suppose, what, in the 1900s and were an attempt to prevent the party establishments from uh, deciding who should be the party nominee. So you gave it 
to ordinary people, ordinary uh, members of the party in the individual states. Trump, I think, uh, and it's interesting what others feel, Trump is a product of that system. Sanders is a challenge to that system. He's made a tremendous success of doing so in a set of democratic primaries that are, if you like, he could easily say, well, he did say, are rigged against someone like him because what is it, something like 15% of the delegates that go to the convention are actually superdelegates who are essentially party establishment figures. They're congressmen, senators, governors, and, and all the rest of it. And they were pretty solidly for Hillary. Uh, and they didn't have to be pledged in advance, but they, they were. And he has, I think, managed to secure some changes now in the, the primary system the next time round. But it seems to me that that is part of the volatility of American politics, that it is there is a primary system which is now being operated by insurgents and establishment in different ways. And that is part of the, the reason why we have the kind of election we have today. Yeah, I think that's a good point. But I think it's quite difficult to compare the, the Democratic and the Republican primaries this time and trying to work out any kind of general pattern as to what's going on in the primaries. Because essentially what the Democratic Party did was to pick somebody in advance and then have somebody who wasn't a member of the Democratic Party a year before challenge her for the nomination in ways that I, I don't think it's actually unfair to suggest, as Bernie Sanders has done, that they were rigged or at least partly rigged in certain ways. And it was very difficult for him to have had any realistic prospect of winning under the ways in which those dynamics played out. What you had in the Republican Party was a free-for-all um, in which all parts of the party were represented and somebody who, again, wasn't really a Republican in any meaningful sense a year or so before he ran, or at least a couple of years before he ran, coming along and splitting the field and um, taking the nomination. Now, was it the weakness of the um, Republican primary system that allowed that? Possibly. But it is also clearly the weakness of the other candidates, despite the fact that it came from the whole range of possible political positions within the Republican Party. But I think, and this is where I kind of, I think I'm more with David than with Aaron, I do think there was a lot that is similar between the two insurgents' candidacies. And I think, adding on to um, a point that was made earlier, is, is that the third issue that we have to see is important to the Trump candidacy, and without which I don't think it makes a great deal of sense, and it's certainly important to the Bernie candidacy, is corruption. Is that This is a critique of the corruption of the American Republic. It's a claim that something has fundamentally gone wrong with democratic politics in the United States, that in some sense it is no longer a democracy. And that is the feeling that Sanders and Trump in their different ways have been able to tap into. And what they've done is to use their different sets of issues. The one I'd say that they actually have two issues in common, the trade issue plus attacking the Federal Reserve Board over quantitative easing, have been able to use those particular issues and tie them into their critique of American politics doesn't work because it isn't for the regular people, it's for the rich. And that is, I think, the pattern that goes back to having historical antecedents in not only Andrew Jackson's candidacy in 1824, but in William Jennings Bryan's candidacy, as Gary mentioned earlier, in 1896, where you have a candidate who simply says the system doesn't work any longer because it's producing economic outcomes that are entirely for the benefit of the rich. And in this case, as Brian, Brian was arguing. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. 
Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. And then screwing the farmers over. I think that's a good point at which to open this up for our questions. We'll come back at the end to discuss a little bit what a Hillary presidency might be like and the challenges she will face. But we'd like to take uh, 10 or 15 minutes or so of questions. So if you'd like to put your hand up, we've got a microphone that will come round. I just wanted to perhaps pick up a point that both Helen and David made. Um, it's about the future of the Republican Party. If we take the scenario that a Trump candidacy loses the Republicans, the presidential campaign, but also control a Senate. It's arguable whether Trump is a Republican at all. In fact, his own Republican colleagues are not quite sure if he's actually a Republican. So if you think about the 20th century, the Democrats were the fastest, swiftest to respond to the changing landscape of the US. Is the future of the Republican Party about if they are swiftest to adapt to the US in the 21st century? After the last 2012 election, they told themselves what they needed to do but they singly failed to listen to themselves. Is the future bleak in that sense for the Republicans? Yes, but <laughs> who else would like to give a longer answer? The, the, um, the Republican Party, as it's currently constituted, I don't think can win a national presidential election. The US is becoming a majority-minority country, meaning a majority of the people will be non-white by 2050 at the latest. Even if 11 million Mexicans are deported, this demographic reality comes to bear. The electorate becomes more non-white by 2% every four years. You do that over 10 years and you see the ramifications. The, you're absolutely right. The, the lesson that the Republican Party took in 2012 from the, their loss to Obama, an election, by the way, they should have won, I believe, uh, was that they had a, a reach out, they had to have a big tent, uh, they had to um, bring in more minorities. This was a recommendation of the establishment of the Republican Party. Um, they tried it, along comes Trump, and literally blows everything up. How exactly the Republican Party picks up the pieces uh, from this election is not at all clear. There will be a movement uh, to return to the lessons of 2012 and to apply them again. But clearly, the most energized part of the party right now is the part uh, supporting Trump. And uh, it's not clear the Republican Party establishment, whatever that is, is going to be able to surmount that. One of the unprecedented features of this election is I don't think in my lifetime have I seen a political party in this kind of crisis. Not that it's going to disappear, but its angry fragments may ramify and bang around all of American politics in in very damaging ways, and I can't see a clear path toward uh, reintegration. One way of understanding this election has been a, from the beginning to end is civil war within the Republican Party, and it is ending with both sides defeated. If I could approach that question about the future of the Republican Party from a slightly different angle. Uh, this term sounds a little complex, but it's actually very intuitive. There's something in political science called the median voter theorem, which says that in democracies, political parties should try to appeal to the typical voter. Right, who tends to be most representative of the population because you need a lot of votes to win, right? You need a, a majority in the first past the post system like the United States. And so 
the theorem basically says, right, it's the same as if you're trying to sell ice cream to people, right? You look at the median ice cream buyer and you try to appeal to that common denominator. It seems to me that the median voter theorem needs a lot of rethinking in the light of, of not only this election, but uh, really since uh, I would say the 1980s or perhaps even the 1970s when uh, primaries became much more important in selecting candidates in the United States. Uh, because what you see in primaries is the people who vote don't necessarily look like the median voter. They tend to be, especially in caucuses, they tend to be much more politically engaged and have much stronger feelings about the issues and also have kind of more extreme positions on the issues than does your typical voter uh, in the United States. And the other thing is the median voter theorem assumes that politicians know what the median voter looks like. Whereas in an age where you have more and more opportunities to just kind of engage in echo chambers, right, because you have niche websites on, on the internet uh, that just kind of reflect your own worldview, I think politicians, uh, uh, especially in the Republican Party, have had a tendency to kind of have a very warped idea of what the typical voter looks like. This is where you get things like conservatives demanding that the polls be unskewed, right? Because the polls couldn't possibly be right because all the people that I know aren't going to vote for Obama. What the heck's a Barack Obama anyway? It sounds, you know, what, what is that? Well, you know, that's, that's problematic. So uh, yeah, the future of the Republican Party, I think, depends on getting a better sense of where the country is going. But I don't really see either through the primary system or the modern media structure uh, that happening anytime soon. Hello. I wanted to ask about, um, obviously, there have been accusations that foreign states have been meddling with, in the election. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and my question is, how do you think that is going to play out after the election is, is over? What ramifications do you think that will have? I assume you're referring to Liechtenstein meddling. <laughs> but, um, um, anyway, the, the unnamed leader of a particular country... I think that is relatively small beer compared to the really substantial problems that any president is going to have dealing with Russia at the moment. And uh, you know the question of Ukraine, the question of, of Syria. I think that the, the, the issue of whether there has been some dirty tricks with regard to the American election is relatively small beer compared to that. But that will be one of the big things on the new presidency. So I take it you're assuming in that answer that Hillary Clinton will win, because if Donald Trump wins, I think... That's right. Then, then all, all bets are off. I'm, I'm only talking about Hillary Clinton. We will reconvene and we'll have yes, another we'll have go at this. I find it quite astonishing when I was watching the second debate that Hillary Clinton was so open in suggesting, essentially, that Trump was a proxy candidate for the Russians. I mean... I've got, I, I'm very sceptical of whether that's the case, but that's neither really here nor there. But if you think about it, this is the presidential, leading presidential candidate who are almost certainly going to be the next president of the United States, suggesting that the Russians are trying to put in somebody who they have chosen for themselves to be the next president of the United States. This is a nuclear-armed state. What does she think is going to happen in any possibility in which Trump won the presidency? I mean, that is just... And even if you think that that's true, that seems to me to be an astonishing thing to say once you think through what the implications are if Trump were to win the presidency. What on earth was supposed to happen if Trump were to win when that kind of accusation has been made? I, 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 in all the kinds of mind-boggling things that have happened in this election, that's one of them that I think really is, is out there. I have to say one of my favourite lines from the campaign is the person who said that Vladimir Putin is the real-life version of the character that Donald Trump is playing on television. <laughs> Gary. <laughs> If we look at this from another point of view, why is Putin eager to sow 
to draw near to Trump and why is he eager to see him elected? There's an anti-democratic front taking shape in the world uh, and those uh, countries and leaders that are part of it would consider, I think, Trump to be an ally. Russia, Erdogan in Turkey, perhaps some places in Eastern and Central Europe. Modi in India, there's a tremendous amount of interest in Trump there. And this reminds me a little bit of the 1930s when democracy was seen as not functioning, not able to solve their problems, and you needed a series of strong men to rise up and um, put puts the societies and people back in their places. And uh, there's an element of Trumpism that um, is very attractive to those strong men in those places. So the connections are, are worrisome, and I think we have to take the possibility of an anti-democratic front presenting itself as a more effective solver of people's problems, becoming a greater force in the world. The US system of government is one which favors two party, a two-party system. Um, but do you think that the, particularly with the growth in Latino population in America, that the US population is actually less compatible with this two-party system now? Do you think that going forwards that the two-party system, albeit two umbrella parties, is not actually compatible with the sort of populist politics that we've seen amongst the American people? We've been talking about the problems that might face the Republican Party in the future. I think that if, uh, as Gary suggests, you're looking at a period in which the Democrats are more likely to be the party in the White House, they are going to have real challenges in making that umbrella sufficiently capacious and ensuring that this isn't, uh, the party isn't just a series of bit coalitions that, that hold something together. Because the issue of American identity is going to affect the Democratic Party as much as the Republican Party. They are trying to be inclusive, but what exactly is the redefinition of an American that they are, are going for? And I don't hear an awful lot of that at the moment. You can get in, in a system that favors uh, a two-party, first-past-the-post system, you can get viable third parties for a while, but they tend to be regional. So uh, in a country called Great Britain, there is a third party. <laughs> the, the Scottish National Party has a pretty strong lock right now on uh, the voting base in Scotland. In U.S. history, you do see these kinds of regional parties that spring up, whether it's the Dixiecrats uh, or, well, Bill Moose Party wasn't really a, a regional party so much, but it was a, a viable third party that actually threw the election to uh, Woodrow Wilson. But the chances of getting a long-term three-party system whenever you have a non-proportional voting system is, is pretty slight, if this guy named uh, Duverger was, was correct, a French political theoretician. Actually, who, who doesn't get name-checked in the presidential debate? Yeah. Duverger should. That yeah. often. I mean, Gary, but is it, one question, is it regional? I mean, that's the thing, this, this fracturing, is, is it plausibly going to be regional, or is, does it cut across most communities in the United States? Well, Trump, Trump confounds that just as he's confounded so much else, because the natural base of the Republican Party and a lot of his support from coming from the South, but in no sense is Donald Trump a Southerner. Not in a bone in his body. And also Bernie Sanders' support is confounding conventional notions of regionalism. All this support for him from whites in the trans-Mississippi West, uh, a real puzzle. Democrats have not pulled those votes in a long time. So I think another sign of the scrambling effect of this election is that uh, uh, 
regional uh, blocks that we have been comfortable using to talk about American politics are no longer so stable. And we see that from another point of view, the, the inroads that the Democratic Party is now making on the solid Republican South, North Carolina, Georgia, um, other places. It's no longer the solid South. So I think what we are beginning to see is perhaps a, there will, st there will still be regional concentration. I think Aaron is absolutely right. Third parties survive uh, as regional groupings, not as national groupings. But we're going to see a, 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 a rejuggling of what those regions are. As for a third party, there's been uh, really succeeding over the long term. There's been one in all of American history, and that's the uh, Republican Party in terms of a, a party that actually rose from the margins. In the 1850s, yeah. In the 1850s, displaced an established party. So I think what we're likely to see is the continuing effect of these third party movements, bubblings, that try and reshape the center, but I, I, I would, my guess is that the two-party, I'm agreeing, system will pretty much stay in place. Um, so I'm sure there'll be a lot of time spent um, analyzing what has led to the rise of popularity of someone like Trump, um, but one of the ideas that's put out there is that we're kind of entering um, this post-truth era. How much of a role do you think that has played in this election, and how much of a role do you think it will play moving forward if you think it is a legitimate reason? I'm very sceptical about the idea of post-truth politics because for this very simple reason is, is whenever was this period in which there was truth in politics? <laughs> I mean, if someone could tell me when candidates and parties didn't make you know, implausible allegations against each other, didn't engage in hyperbole, didn't engage in outright lies at times... I mean, if you look at some of the stuff that was said in the 1800 election, you know, in, um, in the United States, it would, it would make, you know, this election look like a picnic in the park, even in terms of some of the things that were said in the, in the, in the, in the, in the second um, debate. And so I think that if we're going to say that things have changed, we have to have some idea of like, OK, this was the period in the past in which they were one way and now they're not that way. And I, I've never heard anyone who's made the argument when post-truth politics as to when this period when politics was fundamentally truthful, even partly truthful, was. Politics and truth just don't go together. Uh, your question makes me think also uh, back to 1964 in the sense that I think at that, it was at that point, indeed November 64, that Richard Hostafter, the distinguished American political historian, wrote a piece in Harper's Magazine called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And he tracked, he was trying to trace the roots of Goldwaterism, and he tracked back over the 19th century. He found a whole lot of groupings, insurgents, who were quite convinced about the most uh, extreme theories about how one thing or another was being manipulated by uh, the establishment anti-Mason party, uh, know-nothing party, populist later on, and all the rest of it. And uh, it seems to me that you, know, you could say that is a, a pattern in American politics, but as Helen says, uh, the idea of conspiracies is one of the lifebloods of, of most political systems, particularly from outsiders. So I'm not sure I agree either with this, this notion that, um, that we've lost the, the past uh, truthfulness of politics. I would basically agree with those comments. And I would say, really, the idea that voters care that much about the truth is overblown as well. There's an excellent new book uh, out by uh, Christopher Aiken and Larry Bartels, and I might script the title a little bit, it's called uh, Democratic Theory for Realists, and it says, you know, we have this idea of a voter as somebody with political preferences, and then he or she picks the candidate that seems to represent those preferences the best. Wrong, wrong, that's not what happens at all. Uh, what happens is people have social identities, right? They have various groups 
that they identify with and various groups that they don't like very much at all. And they try to figure out which candidate fits into which group. And then they rationalize post hoc the policies that that candidate puts forward as being in their own interest. That's very distressing, but that seems to be the way that people reason. We have about 60 years of scientific research uh, to back this up that Aikens and Bartels summarize. And so when you have a candidate who is fairly mainstream, who for whatever reason, whether it's institutional constraints or, is, or her own idea of statesmanship, uh, says things that we consider to be within the norm of political discourse, you don't notice the fact that that voters don't seem to care that much about truth. When you have somebody like Trump, then you start to notice it quite a lot. Can we have one more brief question? Then we'll do, yep, gentleman there at the back. Um, so Trump's spent quite a lot of time trading on this idea of, um, of a rigged election that crooked Hillary is going to um, go into the ballot boxes and change everyone's vote to be for her. Um, what can you imagine being the consequences of this in terms of across America if Hillary wins and if it starts to look like there are a lot of people who are disenfranchised who feel that the election has been rigged against them, are there any historical precedents for what happens in this situation? Any kind of um, unrest that you're kind of predicting or you think might be most likely to happen? And, and could I add to that, do, does anyone think there's the real possibility of violence after this election? Okay, we have, for those of us listening, we have one hand that has just gone up from Aaron. Couldn't, couldn't make that up from the two, way. Gary, any more? Any takers on two? So it's a split jury. We've already had a uh, Republican storefront, basically, in North Carolina was firebombed yeah. uh, the other day. Republican office. The state Republican office. office. Yeah. So, what, Gary, you wanna, what do you think the consequences of this might be? I mean, it goes back to where we started, in a way. Are we in uncharted territory here that a candidate... I mean, candidates after the result have sometimes questioned the legitimacy, but we are not at the result stage yet. There, there is a worst period of American history, uh, by far, relative to this, and that's the period after the Civil War when Americans fought each other and 750,000 Americans died, by far the bloodiest war in American history. Uh, and uh, the process of putting the country back together again when blacks in the South had suffrage for the first time and should they be allowed to vote. Uh, if you were to uh, just judge America by that period, you would think it was the most violent society on the face of the earth. Violence was stopped at the cost of reinstituting white supremacy for another 80 years, uh, and that's a sign of the ill effects that really serious violence can have. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, I think the violence is gonna be episodic. Uh, I'm still hopeful that, um, first I'm hopeful that Trump will lose, and I um, am hopeful as well that uh, enough people will commit themselves to the political process to limit the damage done in the short term in terms of violence. And here on a more positive note, we should keep in mind that the United States over its history for all its flaws has never missed an election, uh, which is a pretty extraordinary record. What I do fear is that the poisons that Trump has unleashed into the body politic will remain there. There's no way to flush it out within six months or a year or two. And I think of the great effort of the civil rights movement to take a whole series of sentiments, resentments, prejudices, anger against the other in America and to stuff them in a closet, not to eliminate them because they can never be eliminated, but to put them in a closet where they can be controlled. And what Trump has done is to unlock the key to that closet and let them all out. So they're all out in the land now and they all have to be recorralled and put back in and that's gonna take uh, a long period of time. And if I could just add, if you leave aside the rigging question, there's also an issue here which is that assuming Hillary does win, she will have won by not being Donald Trump. No one's gonna say, 
Well, she won because they really rehearsed the arguments. We all know what she stood for. And in the end, those arguments prevailed. And that presumably poses real challenges for a Hillary Clinton presidency, maybe not at the level of its legitimacy, but certainly its efficacy, which is that she won essentially simply by not being him. I think but as well you could throw into that, there's got to be a reasonable possibility she won't win 50% of the popular vote, mm. um, given the fact of the, uh, the other two candidacies, um, Johnson and Stein, which is a problem actually that haunted her husband um, in the 90s, who also never won 50% of the popular vote in either of the two elections. But I think most people would think if it's a rerun of the 1990s, we're doing okay, right? But a rerun of the 1990s also does mean probably constant investigations of the Clinton presidency, the appointment of a special prosecutor. If, that's what the, if we're going back to the 90s, that's what that also and, means. And doing that against a backdrop where the stakes are much higher and the economic situation is much bleaker. Can I finish, because we're going to have to wrap this up with a devil's advocate question, which is, isn't this a good advertisement for democracy? Um, we've had a candidate who came from nowhere, has had his moment and is now probably going to be tested to destruction and at the end of this process we will have as a president probably other things being equal a very well qualified very experienced very seasoned politician who will face many challenges because presidents do but this election has done what elections are meant to do which is allowed voices that have been excluded tested them and in the case of this candidacy exposed them and I'm aware that is a devil's advocate argument because the looks I'm getting from the panel <laughs> suggest that we don't agree. Well, why don't we take one, on your hypothesis, one of the one aspect and a positive aspect, which would be that Hillary Clinton becomes president of the United States. Um, in 2008, when I was doing this series with the BBC Radio, I said we stop on day one of the Obama presidency. I don't want to go any further and get you know, into counterfactuals and so on, because he has made history on day one after the, inaug the inauguration simply by standing behind a podium saying, President of the United States, and he does not have a white face. The same will go for her on whatever it is, the 20th of January, but somebody who isn't male is standing there as well. And that will be a really important symbolic moment, it seems to me, and one where you could say, heaven knows why the Americans make such a horrendous sort of spasm every four years of electing somebody, but they've actually done two things which ought to be, have been done in 2008 and 2016, whatever the outcomes of those presidencies, because it breaks certain barriers. I agree with that. I think there's another way of looking at it, though, which is, I'm afraid is much more negative, which is to say that it is a terrible advert for democracy because almost certainly the next president of the United States will belong to one of two families who will have been elected to be president of the United States for four of the last five elections. I think that it's quite hard to think that American democracy, in the big sense, not necessarily all the ways in which we'd be, we've been talking about it this evening, in the sense of some idea of the equality of citizens, some idea of meritocracy, is easily reconcilable with that outcome. So it, it's dynastic politics in a democratic age. Yeah. Gary? I hope you're right. Uh, although democracy is not just about elections, it's about governing. And uh, Obama ha has not successfully passed one piece of legislation, major piece of le legislation, in six years. 
whatever he's done, he's done, done by circumventing Congress because it's his only way of going forward. Democracy may begin to work in America if Hillary carries the Senate and the House. And then we may come to look upon this as a very positive moment. There's no doubt positive things have happened. Uh, one of the positive elements that has been alluded to here, the issue of economic inequality is back on the political agenda in the United States in ways that it has not been since the New Deal 80 years. The relationship between the haves and the have-nots, and should this be an issue of politics, and should there be redistribution between the rich and the poor. It's there in American politics in a very profound way. It comes actually both from Sanders and Trump. If this can begin to be encoded into policy, uh, and if the Trump supporters accept the results of the election, and if Hillary uh, has control of both houses of Congress, the United States may be in pretty good shape. I was counting the ifs there. There were, there were only three. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be a good... Aaron, you get the last word. Are you feeling hopeful? No, I'm going to move to Beijing, I think. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I would say this. Democracy is better than other political systems at allowing for smooth, nonviolent transitions of power. But as Gary has pointed out, democratic politics in the United States and elsewhere has been a bloody business. So we'd be, again, a bit naive to pretend that this is too unparalleled uh, a situation. But if anything, I would say, has this been a good advertisement for democracy? It hasn't besmirched all of democracy, but it's been a pretty good example of why there's a lot of flaws in presidential democracy. And now I, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this. I don't know if they'll let me come back to the states after this. But in many ways, right, the U.S. Constitution is not that great of a document when you look at it. It's a great document for its time, but if you had to do it all over again, I don't think we'd have a presidential system in the United States. I think we'd have a parliamentary proportional representation system because in a system like that, even if you do get a, a fringe figure or, or party like Trump, you only get as big of a change in the system as the proportion of people who are attracted to it. Whereas in a presidential system, especially like the United States, especially in a system where you have an electoral college, the Holy Roman Empire had one of those, what went wrong, what wrong there, right? Uh, you know, you can get major changes in the national landscape if just a you know, small proportion of the population decides, let's vote for the, for the nut job. Thank you very, very much to our panel. So this podcast, for those of you who are coming to it for the first time, we do broadcast every week. We will be covering the election through and through its aftermath, and its aftermath will run for 10, 20, 30 years. So we'll be coming back every Thursday to let you know what we think about what's happening. Do join us next week where we're going to have a very different kind of conversation. I'll be speaking to the crime novelist and poet Sophie Hanna, who's the author of the new Hercule Poirot novels. And we're going to be talking about truth in politics and also detective fiction and what it means to think that rational arguments really count. I'd like to thank Helen Thompson, Gary Gerstel, David Reynolds and Aaron Rapport, and also to thank our audience. My name is David Runciman and this has been a special live edition of Talking Politics. <laughs>